Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books and Political Science Podcast. My name is Heath Brown. Today I'll be speaking with Kristen Soltis Anderson, who's the author of The Selfie Vote, Where Millennials Are Leading America and How Republicans Can Keep Up. Kristen's book is published by Broadside Press. I hope that you enjoy the interview that I did with her. Welcome back to the podcast again. I have the real pleasure today to speak with the author of The Selfie Vote, where Millennials Are Leading America and How Republicans Can Keep Up. The author is Kristen Soltis Anderson. Kristen, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, it's a real pleasure. Uh, Many of the guests of this podcast write about politics as former Hill staffers or former campaign managers. You, on the other hand, are an active participant in the political process. So, In the interest of introducing yourself, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about your background and also the types of political campaigns you've worked on in the past or or maybe that you're working on right now. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Certainly. So I've been working in the field of political polling for the last decade. Um, I graduated from the University of Florida with a degree in political science, and my mother always asked me, go Gators indeed. And And my mother always sort of wondered, you know, was what am I going to do with a degree in political science? Or, or can you grow up to be a political scientist? And as it turns out, you can. Um, but rather than practicing it from the academic side, I practiced it more from the practical side. Uh, so I uh, worked for a firm for about nine years called the Winston Group. It's one of the, I think, one of the best Republican polling firms. And we worked for, you know, candidates ranging for, you know, folks running for Senate, uh, folks running for governor, um, all the way up to, uh, we, we did the polling for Newt Gingrich's sort of ill-fated presidential bid in 2012. So that was an educational experience for sure. I'm um, sure. And then last year I launched my own firm called Echelon Insights and we are focused on trying to figure out what the next generation of political polling looks like as people kind of cut the landline phone and as, uh, response rates drop. And then last fall I was also a fellow at Harvard's Institute of Politics. Um, they bring in sort of practice, practitioners of, of politics to come up to Harvard for a semester and um, immerse ourselves in the academic world for a little bit. And I have to say I loved it, and I'm a little bit eager to get back to that sort of thing soon. So. <laughs> well, well, with this book and, and all the uh, thoughtful things you have to say about politics, I can imagine that will happen in, in the future. So you, you write this book primarily about the way the world has changed. And, and the very different life of the average 18-year-old first-time voter. Um, so, so I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about which aspects of this new world matter most for politics. Because there's a lot of change happening. But what, what has the biggest impact on, on the politics that you see? In the book, I focus on changes in what I would call the big variables that pollsters are always looking at, whether that's race, whether that's gender, whether that's income, whether, you know, how dense an area you live in, um, religiosity, marital status. I try to take a look at those big trends that are captured in, in, in the big cross tabs that pollsters are always looking at. 
to see how do things differ for young people today versus their parents. And there are certain things that are, are sort of always going to be the case in terms of generational difference. So I, I try to look not just at things that make young people different from old people, but things that make young people today different from what young people were like 20 years ago. Um, and, and I find a lot of big changes that I, I think threaten the Republican Party's political future. So if you think about the groups of voters that Republicans tend to do well with, it's married voters, it's white voters, it's older voters, um, it's voters that live in rural areas, it's voters that go to church a lot, um, you know, very religious voters. And these are all demographic trends, uh, perhaps with the exception of older voters uh, that, that are, are going away or, or are, are fading in importance. So as the share of voters who are married declines, as the share of voters who are rural declines, as the share of voters who go to church every Sunday declines, Republicans need to know how to broaden their message. And I identify young voters as sort of the, the age cohort that, that best represents a lot of this change. It's a very diverse group, it's a, diverse, a group that looks at and defines family very differently. It's a group that's building their families very differently. While they put a lot of importance on family, they aren't necessarily uh, gravitating toward the, you know, uh, mom and a dad get married and have 2.5 kids, dad's the primary breadwinner sort of a family structure. It's a little bit different, a little bit more modern, modern in some ways. And so I argue in the book that Republicans need to adapt to this reality and need to figure out ways that they can talk about their policy ideas and their principles that will resonate given this great societal change. If I had to sum up the book in one sentence, it would be, the world is changing very quickly. Republicans should not fear this change. They should embrace it. Uh, and so I'm, I'm hopeful that what Republicans will take away from the book is um, that there's a lot of opportunity rather than, uh, than just being <laughs> afraid that, that there's no hope. Right. And, you know, and, and it seems to me that you're describing partially demographic changes that are happening across the, the country. But you also seem to argue that there's a certain set of values uh, that are changing. And, and, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit how the, the values of this millennial generation or, or the younger generation, uh, it's, you know, you, you talk sort of about multiple groups here, but I wonder if you could focus a little bit and, and explain a little bit about what you have found out about how these, these values have changed in, in measurable ways that go beyond kind of the, the demographic uh, cross tabs that you describe. Right. So uh, one of the big themes that I try to bring up in the book is that these, these big demographic shifts and these big crosstabs are linked to these values, um, that everything we do from our consumer behavior to where we choose to live to how we choose to structure our families to whether we decide to go to church or not, those are, are not things that exist in isolation, but they all are rooted in the value structures we have, we have deep within, and then that expresses itself in how we vote. Um, so I talk, for instance, in, in one of the chapters about um, moral foundation theory and how, you know, nowadays, if you take a look at the polling on what young people find to be morally acceptable versus unacceptable, this is a generation that's very non-judgmental, while at the same time being a generation that is kind of living a more uh, conservative, I don't want to say politically conservative, but maybe temperamentally conservative uh, or Victorian lifestyle. Um, so this is a generation that is actually more likely to view something like adultery as being um, morally unacceptable. It's a generation that's more likely to view the death penalty as morally unacceptable or smoking as morally unacceptable. 
while at the same time also being much more permissive of a number of things that previous generations would have frowned upon, things like premarital sex, um, homosexual relationships, etc. Um, things that this generation is very tolerant of that older generations are, are less so. Um, and, and I try to make the argument that younger people are more motivated by um, the, uh, the idea of harm and fairness, that, that for them, um, you know, if something is harmful, they view smoking as harmful, they view cheating as being harmful, uh, that, that those are the things they view as immoral, whereas they don't view homosexuality, they don't view pre- premarital sex, they don't view, they actually don't really view smoking pot as being harmful. And so those things are things they don't think that the government should be in the business of discouraging or, or having anything to do with. Um, so, so that's just one example of where I try to look a little bit um, deeper at, at the, you know, questions of moral judgment and figure out, you know, Republicans, if, if they're branded as the party that's a bit old-fashioned and judgmental, how do you navigate a world where this is a non-judgmental generation but that's actually living a quote-unquote kind of clean living lifestyle um, that you might think would, would, would lend them toward voting Republican? Now, much of this book is, is uh, kind of about big national trends. And, and from a distance, you would say, well, it, it would seem if these are kind of generational misunderstandings, if sort of the, the old timers in the parties uh, just have a trouble uh, relating to, uh, you know, a, a new generation, um, then, then both parties should experience this challenge. But, but you write in the book uh, that, um, that the findings from your book should terrify Republicans. Why is this, this change? a particular challenge for the Republican Party? It's a particular change for the Republican Party because they're the ones that have suffered most at the polls with this demographic in recent elections. So many people have this uh, sort of incorrect piece of conventional wisdom floating around that says that young people are always supposed to be more liberal and then they become conservative as they get older. There's actually a pretty rich body of political science research that, that suggests that's not the case or that that's certainly overstated. Um, I, I cite in, in the book some great research done um, that, that you can find over at 538 where they worked with Democratic firm Catalyst and modeled out political identification based on year of birth. And you find that certain years, uh, particularly the boomers, they do wind up following that pattern because many of them came of political age around the Watergate era, where, where it was very democratic, and then over time have become quite conservative, um, you know, after the Reagan years. You have the Gen Xers that have remained much more stable and sort of a little more conservative. But there is a lot of research that suggests that voting behavior and party ID is pretty sticky, and that once you adhere a party label to yourself, it's harder and harder to, to take that party label off. And the more and more you vote for a particular party, the more you exhibit kind of brand loyalty to them. I liken it to how if you grow up in a Coke or a Pepsi household, you're more likely to want to drink Coke or Pepsi mm-hmm. later on in life. I admit to being a Pepsi drinker, which has actually gotten me the most blowback of pretty much anything in the book. Um, and, and so I make the case that if Republicans are, are the Pepsi, while Democrats are Coke and everybody's growing up in a Coke household, um, it's going to be hard to win those customers or win those voters back decades down the road. So the importance is not just about winning the 2016 presidential election. It's creating the, the permission for these voters to feel okay voting Republican now so that they're not permanently turned off to the party. Now, of course, there can always be big major realigning events, scandals, controversies, unfortunate, you know, 
world events that, that can always change the political landscape. So it's very hard and risky to predict what you think politics will look like 10, 15, 20, 30 years down the road. But I do think there's enough research to suggest that Republicans should not be in the business of losing young voters by 30 points as a sort of general norm. That's not okay. It makes it very difficult for them to win in these presidential years. If they don't win back the White House, they'll never be able to implement their agenda. And frankly, it'll be very hard for them to ever begin to change that impression of what Republicans are all about if they don't start doing it now while the, the youngest millennials are still just entering the political process. Now, your book is, is partially about these, these kinds of changes of attitude, um, but your, your book is also about technology and the mechanics of campaigning. So that you write in the middle of the book, and I'll quote, smart campaigns will make digital a part of every single thing they do. Now, this seems so matter of fact, but I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how universal this understanding is. You know, do the people like the, the direct mail consultants and the, the GOTV consultants agree with this, this argument you're making that, that digital really is king? Take us inside some of these meetings that, that you've probably been in where these discussions take place? So for the most part, when people uh, come to the table as a political consultant, it, you have a little bit of the, you know, when you're a hammer, every problem looks like a nail uh, challenge. So if you're somebody who specializes in uh, sending, you know, direct mail pieces to voters, you come to the table in a campaign and you say, look, I think that we need to be sending out more direct mail because my medium is the one where we guarantee that eyeballs will be seeing our ads, and we can target our ads directly at the people we're looking for, and we know they're going to see our ads when they open their mail. So, you know, we're the best for that reason. And then you have the TV folks who come in and go, well, but you know what? TV is what really moves numbers. And so that's lovely that those male people say that, but, you know, that stuff gets thrown in the trash anyway. You really need TV to make sure that you're blanketing the airwaves and getting your message in front of everyone. And then you have the digital folks. And the digital folks are coming in and they're going, no, 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 no. You TV, you got DVRs now. Everybody's watching Netflix. Nobody's getting ads anymore. And with mail, I mean, gosh, can you be any more, you know, 20th century? Digital is where it's at. So there's always this turf war, usually pretty civil, but there's always this kind of turf war that goes on inside of a political campaign. And the case that I try to make is that, you know, the idea of having digital as its own department is somewhat silly because digital is everything your campaign should be doing. There's fundraising that is done with digital technology. There's voter organizing that's done and volunteer organizing that's done with digital technology. There's, uh, you know, persuasion and advertising that's done with technology. There's grassroots organizing and voter identification that's done with technology. There's, there's not just one thing. You know, direct mail is all about sending people mail to persuade them. And TV is all about putting ads on TV to persuade people. But digital is so much more than just persuasion. And in fact, I think digital is a very small piece of, of the persuasion puzzle. There's so much going on there. But for too long, digital has been sort of an afterthought. It's, it's a box that campaigns feel they need to check. They hire someone who's a, a you know, young digital strategist. and They say, okay, well, we've taken care of the digital thing. And they still stick to a lot of the older methods. Now, I'm not saying campaigns shouldn't send out mail pieces or do at TV advertising campaigns. Not at all. And you'll find a lot of your voters that way. But digital needs to have a, a seat at the table, just like any of the other strategists, if not more so, because 
everything increasingly is digital. And in the selfie vote, I try to make the case not just for campaigns, you know, being on Facebook and Twitter and having a really good email list, but trying to explore new social media platforms and trying to figure out new ways that they can use data to more effectively pinpoint voters, target them, research, uh, uh, reach them with a message, and then learn more about those voters' preferences and attitudes to continue building that relationship through Election Day. Now, uh, b- digital in many ways has become pervasive as digital usage has, has spanned beyond just younger voters. So are there, are there new tools that are going to be used in 2016 to reach millennial and younger voters that maybe weren't even around in 2014 or 2012? Things that the, the savvy Republican and dem- or Democrat candidate is going to be using um, that, that we may not have even heard yet or, or is just in sort of instant stage. Show us behind the curtain a little bit to, to see what's, what's in our future. Most of the time, politics lags behind the corporate world. So YouTube had been around for a little while before the 2006 election happened. But the 2006 election is considered by some to have been the YouTube election. That was the election where you had um, a handful of candidates getting caught saying things uh, that they shouldn't have. You had George Allen in Virginia calling a, a young staffer for the Democrats. Uh, it's the Macaca moment, if you've never heard of it, um, mm-hmm. where you know, he was caught saying something that was sort of you know, racially charged, and, and he wound up losing his race pretty badly and falling off the, the national political scene. Then in 2008, you had an election that was a little more fueled by Facebook. This was the election, the election of Facebook. Um, 2010 was when Twitter uh, more or less began to take off, and I think in, in many ways Republicans got better than the Democrats at Twitter, and that, that had a large factor in the, the rise of the Tea Party. By 2012, you, you more had the, the, it was just sort of the data election. It wasn't so much that there was one particular platform, but it, it was more of a big data election. So in, moving then ahead to 2016, what, what will this election be? I think this election will be the mobile video election. So you've already seen a lot of candidates, Hillary Clinton, Jeb Bush, Brand Paul, Marco Rubio, getting on platforms like Instagram, Snapchat, there's Periscope and Meerkat where you can live stream things. I mean, everybody nowadays is a cameraman, whether the candidates like it or not. And so those who will use that effectively to their advantage, I think will be the ones who succeed. Um, three days before my book came out, the New York Times declared this to be the selfie election. I think that's, that's quite possible. I mean, I, certainly given the title of my book, The Selfie Vote, I'm, I'm mm-hmm. encouraging people to think of this as a selfie election for sure. But I, I think it's actually mobile video that's really going to make the difference, particularly because young women, a very sort of hotly contested voting bloc, is the group that is most commonly using some of these visual storytelling apps, whether it's Snapchat, Pinterest, or Instagram. Young women, are, in particular, are using these platforms. And you've also already got, um, for instance, Jeb Bush, who's begun posting videos with something called uh, Jeb No Filter. It's sort of no, uh, unfiltered uh, videos of him. You know, The most recent one, I think he talks about Sharknado. He's just driving in the car, and one of the staffers captures him talking about how he encountered this crazy made-for-TV movie about sharks where Mark Cuban is president, and what the heck is this? It's a very funny video, and I think candidates will succeed at technology in this election from a communications perspective will be those who figure out how to be very candid and unfiltered and use mobile video 
to give people a window inside their campaign and sort of pull back the veil in a, in a way that campaigns have not before. Uh, for, for good and for bad, uh, we will see lots and lots of videos over the next uh, 18 months Very or so. true. <laughs> uh, Kristen's book is The Selfie Vote, Where Millennials Are Leading America and How Republicans Can Keep Up, published by Broadside Books. Kristen, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you for having me. 